Welcome, welcome, welcome to our first episode of 2023. This is I Thought I'd Be Rich By Now, a podcast for us to obsess about what we're listening to, watching, and reading. We are well into the new year and there is so much going on in pop culture, so let's really just dive into it. So I've been watching so many shows recently, so right now I'm in the middle of watching Jack Reacher on Prime, Jack Ryan on Prime, Yellowstone, which is on Prime and Paramount Plus, I believe, Sex Lives of College Girls on HBO. Um, my feel good rewatch show right now is Modern Family. I love Cam and Modern Family is on Disney and The Bear, which is on Disney as well. I love, love, love this show so much it's so good um sorry i believe it's on disney and apple plus so if you have a chance to watch this i would highly recommend it okay so a piece of pop culture news that was really big um a week or two ago and was all over twitter was about mindy kaling mindy kaling is the executive producer and star of the new animated velma show Uh, on HBO, which is basically an adult cartoon, um, and it's based on the original Scooby-Doo character. Obviously, Scooby-Doo was for kids, but this spinoff focusing on Velma alone is an adult show. So, as I said, this is an adult cartoon for HBO Max, and in it, Velma is an Indian American woman. I have not yet watched the show, but I feel like I have since I was on Twitter at the time of the controversy. It was blowing up everywhere as some, you know, as everything does on Twitter. Okay, there was a hashtag Me Too joke in the show that a lot of people, or at least a lot of people on Twitter, didn't care for. And from there came a lot of criticism of the show and of Mindy Kaling in general. So from the criticism came even more criticism, which resulted in the classic backlash You know what it's like online when it rains, it pours. Maybe you messed up or you did something wrong, but everyone's going to also drag stuff up from your past to cement the fact that you must be an awful person. Sometimes that comes from a legitimate place and the criticism is warranted, but sometimes it's just people hating. Like that ancient proverb of a tweet goes, Each day on Twitter, there is one main character. The goal is to never be it. And unfortunately for Mindy Kaling, uh, she was very much that person. I am certainly not going to jump on a grenade for a rich, privileged person, quite frankly, living the dream. She's a writer, producer, actor, insanely talented and wealthy. But Mindy Kaling is legitimately one of my favorite people in Hollywood. I loved that she was able to parlay her amazing career from writing and acting on The Office into becoming one of the powerhouses in television as well as a celebrated author. In today's media landscape of all streaming all the time, 25 shows getting canceled per day, so many shows not being able to keep anyone's attention for more than a week at most, Mindy Killing has truly made a mark. The Mindy Project remains one of my go-to feel-good shows, and I would have watched the show for like 10 more seasons 
no matter if it went way downhill, I would always watch it because I love Mindy and I loved that show. This absolutely does not mean that she's immune from criticism or that she can't mess up. It seems like one of the biggest gripes against Mindy is that she writes Indian characters who are kind of self-loathing, who make fun of their heritage, and are always falling for the white guy. There's never a serious Indian romantic lead vying for the woman's attention. I have multiple takes and feelings about this, of course. First off, I'm a bleeding heart, so it does always make me sad seeing someone I love, like Mindy, getting torn up online, so there's that. But I'm really proud of Mindy being a brown woman and becoming so successful in TV and in spe- like specifically in comedy, which is such a large feat. With all the gains that women have made in recent years and decades in Hollywood, comedy is still very much a man's world, but it is changing. I've read things such as Mindy's writer's rooms are a lot less diverse than her cast. So that could be legitimate criticism if true. If you as a woman of color are writing stories about girls and women of color, you want to make sure that there are actually people who can write and joke about some of those experiences from their own personal experiences. You want those people to be part of your writing team. I do think it's time for maybe at least one Indian character to have an Indian boyfriend. And I feel weird even saying that because overall, I don't believe in making rules for art and say like you have to check this box. I would hate for someone to write a character naturally but then change up who that person is based on audience capture and that can be a tightrope for artists. Um, I don't think it's unreasonable though to say that it would be reflective of normal life for someone to be interested in someone of the same race and if that keeps not happening every time you see a character of that race it becomes noticeable but you know as I said it is hard to find the balance there because your fans flock to your shows because they really love your storytelling so do you feel like they're asking you to change up core parts of your personality and writing style to give them what they want Or maybe your writing has gone stagnant and needs to grow and change. When is it legitimate criticism versus just people hating? When are you being strong and blocking out the negativity versus when are you being stubborn and putting your head in the sand? But I do think it can be natural to mask self-loathing or embarrassment with jokes, jokes about your body and your looks to deflect real shame and rejection to make fun of yourself first, to take the sting out of someone pointing out those supposed flaws. But I do think Mindy and her audience deserve not just characters like that, but Indian women who feel comfortable in their own bodies and don't always have a knee-jerk reaction to putting themselves down, who love themselves and who feel fully confident in who they are. I think Mindy Kaling, like a lot of successful, visible minorities, is in a really tough situation. She's the first in so many categories. She's looked up to by so many women of all races, but especially women of color. She's never going to please everyone. It literally cannot happen. What I hope is that there are more Asian and East Asian actors, writers, and producers so that there are more stories and shows and movies to appeal to different people and audiences. That way, you're not going to just have one person to look to to provide all of the representation that you may be looking for. 
regardless of any and all good faith criticism of Mindy, she clearly loves writing for and about Indian American girls and women and always makes sure that they have a prominent place in all of her art. Let's be real, there are plenty of white guys in Hollywood that get criticized, but they don't have the added pressure of being looked to by their community as the only person who puts their type of person on screen. There are a million and one places you can go to see white male characters that are flawed and interesting and funny, people that are beloved or hated, etc, etc. There is only one real place to consistently look to for Indian women representation in Hollywood, and that is whatever Mindy's latest project is. I think that says a lot more about the failures of the industry than it does about Mindy Killing's abilities. This will have a lot of spoilers. I won't spoil absolutely everything, but I will spoil a lot of things about this show. So it's like a 75% spoiler recap of The Last of Us on HBO. The Last of Us by HBO is the post-apocalyptic show based on the video game of the same name. Several years ago, The Last of Us seemed like it was the biggest video game in the entire world. I, who am absolutely not a gamer at all, bought it just due to the hype because I'd seen it like being talked about everywhere online. I literally played a few minutes of it alone. Like, okay, maybe I played it for 30 to 45 minutes alone at home at night and I got too scared and I turned it off and I have never turned it back on. Even though I keep saying like, I'm going to do it, it, that's highly doubtful. So HBO has now adapted the video game into a show and so far it seems that the reception has been very good. Pedro Pascal who is the go-to man if you want a hit show following a solitary man who unwillingly gets roped into taking care of a child or a childlike creature, see The Mandalorian, plays the lead character Joel in The Last of Us. By the way, the reason I say that seemingly so far everything is going well and, and that's such a big deal because Video games are notorious for their like movie and TV show adaptations being absolutely hated by the fans of the video game. That's from from what I read, like a lot of players are always complaining that um, that the producers and writers just never do a good job. And I'm sure it's very hard as well to like translate a video game into a series or a movie. So right now, I am sure those writers and producers and actors are like super excited because there are far more failures um, when it comes to video game to TV adaptation than there are successes. So The Last of Us starts off by showing us the regular world Joel had living his life. And we see a little bit of how, how the event happened. So what actually happen is all of a sudden there's a pandemic infection that spreads rapidly from person to person. Sound familiar? Once a person gets infected with the illness, they become or they seemingly change into some sort of rabid creature that's, that eats other people. So essentially it's like a zombie type of infection. We're shown how the military and government do not have things under control at all. Then the show jumps forward about 20 years after the initial infection, and we see Joel and other survivors living in a, protect, 
or protected and walled off patrolled community referred to as the Boston QZ, meaning quarantine zone. It's run by the Federal Disaster Response Agency, FEDRA. Joel is a smuggler and is one of a few people besides soldiers who can get over the wall into the outside world and back safely. We see that, well, I shouldn't say safely, it's very dangerous, but he's able to go back and forth. We see that he's partnered up with a woman named Tess. Within the QZ, there's a rebel group named Fireflies, and the leader of that group begs Tess and Joel to smuggle a young girl named Ellie out of the QZ walls and to a safe location. In exchange, the Fireflies leader, Marlene, promises them a truck. Jess and Joel need a vehicle and or a working car battery as they have a plan to look for Joel's brother, Tommy, who they believe has gone missing outside of the walls. Jess is played by an Australian actress who I love and is very low-key and underrated in my opinion, the great Anna Torv. I know lots of people loved her in the sci-fi hit Fringe. I first saw her in Mindhunters on Netflix and in Secret City, which you should watch both of those series if you haven't. I think they both only have two seasons. So Ellie is played by Bella. So the little girl Ellie is played by Bella Ramsey, the English actress who first shot to fame as the scene stealer child noblewoman in Game of Thrones. In this episode, we find out why the Fireflies are so concerned with getting Ellie to the draw point. She's seemingly the only person, and this is a big spoiler, she's seemingly the only person to be immune to the infection of the zombie-like creatures. So she has a bite scar on her arm from being bitten by an infected person, but her wound has healed and she is fine. Her body has not turned and she does not feel ill, although when given a test on one of the Fedra, like they have these handheld test devices that they can like kind of wave at you and it either I think beeps green for safe or red for infected, her results always come up as infected, although she's doing okay. The first two episodes of The Last of Us were character building and like scene and world building, and they were both really good on their own. The creature reveal in episode two was like absolutely disgusting and horrifying in a good way because there are like the regular infected people that look like zombies, but there are these special other creatures. I forget what they're called right now, but they are so nasty looking. So if you want a nightmare, watch episode two. Episode three, which is, which was the latest episode to come out and the newest one is coming out um, in two days on Sunday. But episode three was not quite a standalone episode, but almost it was about two characters that we have not seen before and how they those two characters came to meet. So it's basically a love story of two men who meet in a hellish version of their planet that's being ripped apart by the pandemic. They stumble into each other's lives and fall in love in the most unlikely of circumstances. Bill is a survivalist who is one of those preppers that we all think are crazy, but they're going to totally end up laughing at the end when all of us are dead when they're prepared for the literal zombie apocalypse frank falls into so that so that's who bill is he's a survivalist then frank falls into one of the traps that bill has laid on his property to protect his home from both the sick and raiders which are regular people but that are just like raiding any place they can find that humans 
are living um, and have, you know, like food and, and sustenance. Bill is suspicious of Frank, but he takes him in out of the trap and feeds him a gourmet meal with wine. And it's very apparent that Frank, like most people, have not had anything close to that like delicious or decadent and is profoundly grateful for Bill's hospitality. Bill seems like a curmudgeon who is imposed by the arrival of Frank, but it's mostly fear, fear of what's out there. He quickly realizes that Frank is really just a man trying to survive and Bill's heart warms towards him. They share a kiss and fall in love. Years later into their old age, we see that Frank has some sort of degenerative disease that has left him requiring a wheelchair and limited movement of of his upper body, and it seems like he can't move his lower body at all. Bill lovingly takes care of him. One morning, Frank tells Bill that it's going to be his last morning. It seems like this is something they've discussed before, but it still catches Bill off guard and he's understandably devastated. His longtime partner, his companion, and the literally like one of the last people he has in the entire world is telling him that he wants only one last day on earth and he wants to die. Clearly, he does not want to live in his body that's failing him and that is going to continue to fail him while there's really no... Um, medical help that he can seek in this world. Frank instructs Bill to make him one last amazing dinner and to crush up a bunch of lethal pills and put them into his wine at the end of dinner. By the way, I was working so hard not to sob during the scene. Like I, I feel like crying even talking about it right now. Anyways, at dinner, once Frank drinks his glass of wine with the pills so that he can go to sleep and never wake up again bill looks at him and then chugs his own glass of wine letting frank know that his glass also has pills in it and that they're going to die together i love frank's reaction he tells bill like i don't support this at all but he also can't deny that it's the most romantic gesture ever the whole scene was so devastating and so beautiful and well written Shout out to someone on Twitter who said, finally, gay men get their version of San Junipero. If you've never watched the San Junipero Black Mirror episode, you should get on that. But probably do not watch both of those episodes, so the third episode of Last of Us and San Junipero, on the same night. um, Because you'll just like have an extremely devastating day and night and be an emotional wreck. Both actors who play these characters did an excellent job. Bill is played by Nick Offerman of Parks and Rec fame, of course. And Frank is played by Murray Bartlett, who you may know from White Lotus season one. And like he's been in a million other things, but that's the most recent uh, thing I can think of. The reason this is not an entirely standalone episode is that Joel and Tess knew Bill and Frank. Joel and Ellie stop by Bill and Frank's home for supplies, and that's where they discover that the two have just recently committed suicide together. The first three episodes so far remind me of the feeling I had when I watched, or when I first watched, like the first season of The Walking Dead years and years ago. In the second episode, there are several scenes in Jakarta, Indonesia where a mycologist confirms the terrifying truth that the impending pandemic, so at that time it was impending, 
is via a fungal infection, therefore virtually untreatable. And it just like really builds the terror in that episode. This reminded me of the amazing zombie apocalypse novel, World War Z, not the movie, the book. When a doctor at the beginning of the book meets patient zero in a small remote town in China, the author Max Brooks crafted a great and terrifying intro with that meeting and it got me hooked on that book right away. That's exactly how I felt watching the Jakarta scenes in episode two of The Last of Us. By the way, I know everyone crapped on the World War Z movie. For me, it was a fun movie. It's just nothing like the book. Don't expect the movie to be anything like the book and I think you'll have a fun time watching it it's been years since I saw it but I remember that it was a fun good movie and it literally had no like basis on the book whatsoever they're just two completely different entities the last of us is so worth the weekly wait for it there are shows that you want to binge and that I will wait for the entire thing to come out before I watch it. But The Last of Us has such high production value, um, like super talented actors, a really compelling storyline so far, which makes watching it that much more enjoyable and that you have to wait to see what happens next. This is where HBO still reigns supreme in the streaming wars they know the value of the weight and they make a product that people find that it's worth waiting for. So I'm super excited to see episode four. You can catch The Last of Us on HBO, HBO Max, and in Canada, that would be on Crave. I read a few books this January, which I'm really happy about. Because in 2022, I was essentially doing the bare minimum. So one book per month, which are for my book club. Therefore, I was barely reading anything that was just for me because I chose it. It was all whenever I read for book club, it's books that everyone votes on. I recently finished reading a novel called Every Summer After by Carly Fortune. I got that book as a gift. I would most likely have not chosen that book at a store for myself. Uh, like when I'm choosing one for myself, um, just for fun, like I've said a million times before, I gravitate to murder mystery thrillers. That is actually part of why being part of a book club is great because it forces you to read um, books that are out of your comfort zone or things that you would never think you'd enjoy or that you'd never choose for yourself. But anyways, I got the book in December and I told myself that I was going to read it immediately because I have so many books on my bookshelf that are well over a year old, several that are pushing like four to five years old. Um, and one of my 2023 goals is to read at least a bunch of those books that have been sitting on my shelf. So I didn't want to like add a new one to it from this past December. I'm like, let me just start with this one, read it, get it out of the way. And yeah, I just want to read all those books that have been sitting on my shelf and not allowing myself to buy anything new unless it's my book club book, which I do have to get each month. We'll check back in in six months to see if I've fallen off that wagon or not, but that's at least my plan. Although I wouldn't have chosen every summer after for myself, I'm so, so glad it was given to me and that I forced myself to read it because I had so much fun reading it. No spoilers, but it's about two kids who meet each other in northern Ontario cottage country. 
and become best friends. And of course, that's not a spoiler, fall for each other, but not without drama, of course. I don't know if it's because I'm Canadian, but I really loved the idyllic like idea of teenage summer, living up north during the hot months and having a lake right in front of you and just hanging out, making friendship bracelets and finding cute boys to crush on because that would have been my dream as like a middle schooler slash early high school. Valentine's Day is fast approaching. I know that's crazy, um, but it is going to be here. It's around the corner. It's really lovely. I don't want to describe it as light reading as if it doesn't have like real warmth to it or that it's superficial because it is not. I really, really enjoyed it, but it's also a nice change of pace from some of the darker stories that I've been reading and listening to recently. So I really loved Every Summer After by Carly Fortune. You should go out and buy it for yourself, even if it doesn't sound like it's up your alley. I think you'll really enjoy it because I did. And it would be a really great gift idea for someone in your life that enjoys reading. I also listened to The Wife Upstairs by Rachel Hawkins. This book is a mystery thriller based on an old story. So as soon as I read which old story it's based on, it kind of spoiled it a little bit for me because I knew exactly what one of like the big parts of the story would be about Um, but I won't say it here just in case you don't want that spoiler the book is a southern gothic novel about rich people and their rich lives and interlopers and con artists who want to be part of it all it was a fun and quick listen it wasn't too deep which isn't a bad thing I wanted an entertaining story that I could get through quickly and the wife upstairs was perfect for that So the Oscars are coming up soon. I think it's in early March. I always think of it being in February, but um, I think it's going to be in early March this year. I have been MIA from the entire award show scene since 2020. And when I say I've been MIA, I mean I haven't been watching it sitting on my couch. Um, Like, I could not get over Zoom award shows Like, I'm so happy for everyone involved that they kept going because obviously people have jobs and like filmmakers still had films and and it's such like a, you know, prestigious thing for your career to get that. But like as an audience member, I was so detached. I did not care. And I and usually the Oscars is my thing. It's like my biggest night of TV. And I have being just so out of it and not caring for the last couple of years. Now I am more motivated to get into Oscars again this year. And I've started, like, I have watched a bit of the menu. I couldn't finish it the other day, so I need to go back. But it seemed pretty interesting so far. I also watched everything everywhere all at once. Like, people have been talking about that movie for months and months online. So I finally sat down and watched it. It's a bizarre, insane movie that's not going to appeal to everyone, and it shouldn't have to, but I enjoyed it a lot, and I love Michelle Yeoh as an actress and her role in this film, but Kihi Kwan, he steals the show as her loving husband. He's so good in it, and you just like absolutely love him. This is essentially a family drama wrapped up in a sci-fi world-jumping storyline. If you get the chance to watch it, you should totally do so. It is a crazy and fun, wild movie. Like, even if it's not your thing, I don't think you're going to be bored sitting through it at all. It was really fun. 
If you have any recommendations for me, as always, please email me at I thought I'd be rich by now at gmail.com or you can message me on Instagram at I thought I'd be rich by now. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you soon. Goodbye.